Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. Uh, it's me, Sanderson, doing the intro as I always do. And uh, the Lifefulness Podcast is an exploration of what it means to live a spiritual life for in a way that's totally secular. And that doesn't mean it's only for people who are secular, but it means that we can look at different wisdom traditions and practices and see how they can be combined with modern science, what we can do to reinterpret them. And we do that by interviewing amazing thinkers, authors, artists, performers, um, people of note. And today we've got an absolute banger for you, our uh, speaker today. Her name is Gwendolyn Smith and she's a clinical psychologist. So Dr. Gwendolyn Smith from New Zealand, where she is not only a psychologist, but she's also a best-selling author and sort of uh, psychology celeb uh, because she became Tumblr famous in her 50s and started to answer lots of questions from teenagers and from young people who were just bringing all of their problems. And from that, it sort of spun into her becoming a sort of like a notable blogger. Her name was Dr. No, and she, you know, ended up becoming internet famous, turned it into a book. And the reason I got in touch with her is she was releasing a book called The Book of Overthinking, which I loved. It really went into all the sort of issues around worry and anxiety in a way which is super clear. We get to more of that stuff at the end, but at the start of our conversation, it really dives into her past because she has been in the shit. She uh, talks about her depression, her sort of bipolar uh, sort of disorder, and is totally fascinating. So I really love speaking to her. She's she's like, well, I'm going to get out of the way. She's super cool. Also, you've, uh, it's an audio medium, so you can't see how awesome she looks. She's like one of those sort of semi-fierce looking uh, grey-haired women with like big glasses and bold, bright colours on their coat, which look like they should be sort of walking around an art gallery. Uh, and uh, so we're going to have her. One thing she does mention at the start, and as she was saying it, I thought that doesn't sound necessarily true, true. It's not in her area of expertise, but she was talking about paganism. And uh, after research, I realised that some of the claims around months of the year are lovely ideas, but, you know, not necessarily based in history. Um don't think that spoils the conversation, but there might be a few people listening going, oh, what's happening there? So I uh, thought I'd get that in at the top. Uh, if you love these topics of conversation, then what you can do is go and join our community where we discuss them and uh, we speak about like how they can go and impact our lives. And the, the community is not only a place to talk, but it is also a place to get support. And if you want to go and find out more about it, go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership. And uh, yeah, that's where you'll find it. So uh, thanks so much for listening, you wonderful cherry, you fruit from the tree of life, you expression of the universe figuring it out what it wants to do with itself tentacle from the past into the future cloud passing over the sky of being oh you little wonder nut thanks for listening enjoy gwendolyn smith
Welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. How are you today, Gwendolyn? What's going on for you? Well, it's still dark and it's rather chilly because we're at the other side of the world. I've just had a couple of coffees and now I'm sitting with a glass of water ready to go. Oh, well, look, that is good to hear. And I cannot wait to uh, introduce uh, our listeners to you because I absolutely loved your uh, book of overthinking. And I know that uh, overthinking is something which strikes uh, strikes most people <laughs> more times than they would like. But before we get to that, uh, our first question is always, what was the religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? We, um, in the 60s, um, I was born in the UK. And in the 60s, we came out... Um, they used to be called one pound palms. And so you would have an assisted passage on one of the shore Savile liners and come over and you would in exchange work for the government for a minimum of two years. So we were a very working class family and with no emphasis on any um, religious, spiritual, philosophical conversations just really didn't happen in our household. Not that we, it was never that you can't do that. It was, well, you can explore that if you feel like it, but um, it wasn't part of the family milieu. Um, so it wasn't really something that I thought a great deal about because there in the little working class villages that we lived in, um, there was just never really that sort of culture. And um, so, it, like I said, Sanderson, it was just not something I ever thought about or was exposed to. And is it something that you ever encountered later in your life? No, um, never in a formal in a formal way. I mean, I was a very bright child and um, thinking people will question along the way. And, um, but I tell you what is quite an interesting thing is that um, uh, I have bipolar disorder or manic depression as it used to be called. And the fascinating thing for me, I've had three major psychotic episodes. And during those episodes, there's this phenomenal presence of the Godhead. Mm. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. And there's a lot of theories on that. Um, if you read articles on shamanism versus religion. And I came for a sabbatical in Oxford um, in the early 90s and, um, and read an article by the current at the time head of the Anglican Church. And he said that, because I was a psychologist by then, and, and he pointed out that until psychiatry and religion slash spirituality um, reach some sort of collaborative agreement or common ground in the understanding of human beings, um, it was a huge divide that needed to be bridged. So what I found was, was that after I'd have these psychotic episodes coming down from the mania I'd still continue to search 
um, and, and quest for where I'd just been because the first episode, the first night I ever got sick, I reincarnated my version of the crucifixion on a girlfriend's fireplace. Now, I've never read the Bible. I couldn't tell you anything apart from the basic name of half a dozen of the disciples. And yet during that period of time, I wouldn't talk to anybody who wasn't called John. And so you come down from a big, big, big place like that, Sanderson. And so I started reading literature on the psychoneurological basis of God belief systems. Um, and one of the articles I read, and I'll stop raving about this in a minute, but one of the articles I read was that, that there was possibly a part of the brain that was there as a defense against the fear of death and the fear of insanity. I don't have any more expertise on that, but like I said, this was a sort of searching that I would do after I had these massive breaks through the temporal lobe into this, um, what I guess we'd call delusional world, which is very religious in its content. That is uh, fascinating. You're, there's two separate directions, one more serious than the other that I wanted to go after it. You, when you said you were less familiar with the biblical characters, it reminded me of a, it's a friend of my ex's who had to go and become a godparent, and she'd never probably had a background similar to yours, had never really didn't know much of the Bible. And then she had to read something about the crucifixion, which is pretty intense for a christening. And then she said, and then Christ was... Christ was ordered to death under the instructions of Pontius Pilates, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then wondered and then wondered why everyone started laughing. We had someone who's written a great book on schizophrenia called Hidden Valley Road. Have you seen it? No. Ah, it will blow your mind. It is a history of schizophrenia told through one family who are fascinating. He clearly had all the access in the world to the family and he, and who had, I think it's 12 children and six of them had schizophrenia or eight and five of them had schizophrenia. They became a key part of the genetic story of schizophrenia. But what was really interesting is how many of them had religious and spiritual experiences. And there's a lot of research into this at the moment in psychedelics and other places where the, the mind starts to work in a slightly different way. And I think that we are, we still lack a language for how to integrate those sorts of experiences with the world as we know it and then not only how to integrate those experiences but how to create them in a useful socially acceptable way because you know they're and that's that's part of what we're doing here is that like when we are able to have meetings when you get 400 people in a room i'm actually planning a festival at the moment or sort of taking part in the festival and we're gonna hopefully do uh, a wedding for all of the weddings that have been missed and so anyone who had to have a smaller wedding or had to put off their wedding there should be like a few thousand people there and to do a big sort of you know joint ceremony is won't be legally binding obviously but i'm pretty sure that that will create a transformative sort of experience which is not going to be the same as your uh, psychotic episode unless it goes really well there is something which is hugely useful i believe in those different states and that leads us on to the next question which is like 
is there one thing that you see from religions and spiritual traditions that you think our secular world could learn from? The other thing that, that, that happened, and I guess I've always had an interest in, um, in the goddess culture. And so what I did become very attracted to um, was paganism. And I quite like a lot of the stuff. Well, actually, I like a lot of the stuff about paganism. I like, you know, the symbol of talking about weddings, you know, the symbol of, of the ring being an eight, which is infinity, and the cake or the, you know, whatever was um, served up, the, the cake would also be in the shape of an eight, infinity. And then, of course, when you go back, say, to Mesopotamia and places like that, you've got genuinely true matrilineal societies, not matriarchal, but matrilineal. And um, so I became very interested in uh, Mesopotamia, paganism, and then, of course, um, just the horror that followed with, um, with the Dark Ages when, when Orthodox religion really came in and just set about to destroy those cultures like Hitler did with, with books. And, um, and of course, was, was horrified by all that because even if you think today how far backwards we are in certain things because we cut the lifeblood off in those pre-Judeo-Christian um, societies, you know, all of this rubbish about 13 being an unlucky number, whereas 13 was the lunar month and the, and the month of the lunar goddess. And there were 13 months of 28 days, which is the menstrual cycle. And then so then they bring in a solar calendar where you have to say this silly poem just to remember what day it is. In the first episode, I mean, I've always been interested in the tarot purely as a projective technique like Carl Jung used to use it that way. But the tarot was a way of teaching life lessons to the masses. And if you even just look at the major cards, the fall, the journey, the magician, strength, you know, et cetera, et cetera, encompassed in those that are incredible, um, very fundamental life lessons. But of course, the tarot were burnt as also and relegated to the realm of the fortune telling gypsy. So therefore, they had their... And, any credibility was um, ridiculed and they were contraband anyway. So where I guess where I, if I lean towards any interest um, is the pre-Christian phenomena. Stuff like tarot is something where uh, certainly in the sort of lifefulness journey, I've really changed my mind on sort of what it is of like once you start to see it not as a sort of predictive tool but like as you say something to project onto and it is provided it is seen in that way then it is just a really useful way to go and sort of get yourself to check your thinking 
and to go and, you know, bring to mind these sort of, you know, uh, these different challenges that there might be in the, in the same way, I suppose that at some meetings get asked to do, what is it? A pre-mortem. Have you heard that idea? Uh, it's from the idea of Chersky and Kahneman. They say that the only way that you can really think about the about whether a project will fail because we've got this bias, which we always think the stuff that we do is going to work, is if you like one of the ways you can bring on that thing of imagining the issues is saying, okay, we're meeting back here in six months' time, and this has failed. Why did it fail? That's a useful way of thinking. But like, uh, if you just had a big tarot called Death and go, okay, guys, it's in. Uh, let's use our Death tarot card here to go and actually go and think about this failing. And that's what you're you're trying to do. You're trying to give people an extension of of their thoughts. So uh, as I said at the start, the reason that uh, we wanted to interview you is that you are a clinical psychologist of some note, but I saw your book called The Guide to Overthinking. And now this moment I started saying it, I've gone and got it wrong in my head. Is it a guide to overthinking? That's the book of. The book of, there we go. So what it is, Samson, yeah. is that it started off with a book called Knowing, and I had a blog on time Tumblr, you I went, by the way, you went massive on Tumblr. And I'm going to just say right now that you are not the, uh, you are a very stylish woman, but you are not the classic Tumblr demographic, which is sort of 18 to 21 year olds who are goths. How on earth did you get onto tw Tumblr? Well, I've got a, a lovely friend called Lang Leave, and she's an internationally successful poet of love poem. And, um, she came around for dinner one night and she said, Gwendolyn, I'm starting to get all these things coming through on my blog with all these young girls talking about cutting themselves and feeling suicidal. And she said, I'm just completely out of my depth. So I gave her a few tips on how to be completely neutral um, and, and guide them in the direction of professional help. And then she said to me, why don't you do one? So we came up with the idea of Dr. No, K-N-O-W. And by the way, up, that is a James Bond pun, right? It was. Okay, but, good, good, yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, I always yeah. just like to see what the puns yeah. are, what's going on there. Nice, good job, yeah. carry on. It just grew and grew and grew and grew. And I mean, I'm doing it all after hours, you know, and it's all free. Then, then New York Tumblr contacted me. They said, would I be interviewed by The Guardian? I said, yes. Then Tumblr did a, um, a live Q&A for an hour on their live thingy. Guess how many hits, guess how many questions I got in an hour, Sanderson? Uh, okay, uh, 2,000. 11. Thousand? 11,000. Okay, <laughs> if it was 11, that'd have been a really underwhelming story. So what I realized is that there's all these kids out here out there because of course tumblr was very popular in those days and so it was quite global and i thought there's all of these kids in need all over the place so anyway so they had to shut it down they kept the bulk of the letters i think i got about 1500 and i plowed my way through those and then i thought mm, this is it's, it's it's too much for me to be seeing patients all day and then come home and sit for two hours. And of course, I'd, I'd always do every reply would be like it was the first letter I ever had. You know, have you read this? 
have you thought this? So I went to this um, a beautiful Cook Island, Rarotonga, down here, and I wrote Knowing, self-published, cut a long story, got picked up by Alan and Unwin. And so this, the first book, The Book of Knowing, was written for kids, well, teenagers. And then I did The Book of Overthinking. And then my recent, most recent one, which I don't think you've got there yet, is um, The Book of Angst, which is a bit of a little tour through all of the different sorts of anxieties. But the main focus of the book is on social anxiety, which is the fear of judgment, which is of epidemic proportions amongst young people and is considered the world's first world's third largest mental health problem. Circling back to our conversation earlier, when I was studying intellectual history at uni, one of the reasons, one of the things they said that the church did was actually move us from a culture of shame and judgment to a culture of guilt and internal recrimination as a means of seizing power from communities. So, um, yeah, that's um, maybe that's something which is uh, one of maybe maybe neither of those solutions are the best solutions for personal development. But but what was that like for you in your life to suddenly go on a what sounds like a pretty different direction? Rewarding. I mean, you get eleven thousand little punters trying to make contact with you. It's um, that's overwhelming, Sanderson, you know, and um, I mean, I've, I've been a battler and advocate for, for mental health all my life. I mean, after I had my first psychotic episode and really had an inter <coughs> internal experience of stigma, because you see there's two types of stigma. There's stigma from the community and then there's stigma internally which is discussed with the self. This is a failure. I'm weak. I'm flawed. You know, so that sort of thing. So when I went through some of those experiences, when I first came back down to earth, I then went on a bit of a bit of a mission to raise money from the government for a um, destigmatization campaign, and am proud to say raised the initial $13.65 million seedling money. And I could not be effed, um, <laughs> you know. You can go the whole sentence if you want. Don't worry, oh, we're amongst great. friends here. I couldn't be fucked, <laughs> basically, of yeah. all this bureaucracy. So it was like giving birth to this baby and then handing it over and seeing it completely fucked up. So, um, so I withdrew. I mean, it, it still continues, but um, I just don't, you know, I'm not actively involved with it anymore. How old were you when you had that first episode? Or like, what ages have you been when you had them? Late 30s. And, and but the, the literature on manic depression is quite interesting, Sanderson, because you do get a, a, a lot of what we call late onset when I've been, because um, I've got an amazing therapist slash mentor, and he's a PhD in psychoneurology, but he's also a shaman. Having someone like him has enabled me to talk about all sorts of stuff that um, 
you know, like a bit of the stuff you and I are talking about. And um, so when I look back on my life, it was definitely always there, but I was viewed as eccentric, busy, colourful, um, talkative. Um, I was a big risk taker. I mean, we'd have to do a whole other interview to talk about my life in the 70s. <laughs> speaking of speaking of mind-altering substances and <laughs> explorations with LSD, I mean, that was a weekend hobby, you know. Yeah. And uh, in fact, one of my colleagues put forth an interesting thing to me. He said, it makes you wonder if part of where you go when you're sick is actually the rekindling of tracks put in place by the very strong lysergic acid of the 70s. It wasn't the sort of, you know, the sun looks brighter, sort of let's all love up MPA stuff. I mean, it was fucking three-dimensional sort of things moving and carpets coming alive and, you know, was um, very dangerous, I'm sure. But you see that risk-taking, the impulsivity can all be part of constantly living in a state of sort of low-grade grumbling hypermania. I think there's also those spaces within us that we're called to as someone who uh, wasn't doing it in the 70s. But uh, suddenly I'd say that there's a reason that I love to get people together on the weekend and get them into a state of delight and joy with their hands in the air is because that's what I was doing in uh, a lot of my uh, uni uh, stages at uni. And but I think that's also like a really human place that we want to get to. And I'm sure your shaman mentor would agree that there is a part of us, which again, in secular society, isn't really dealt with in a healthy way and that we don't have a language to go and really engage with, but particularly as a lot of this stuff, which the ways that it has been done is now illegal. I uh, sense myself getting into a really interesting, oh, I don't want to sort of get our uh, listeners excited about one place we're going to get to, but I also do want to speak about your book, which uh, is on, which is on this, the book of overthinking, because that is, I know there'll be loads of folk who will have issues with this. So how did you end up choosing this area to go after the, the book of knowing? And what was it that you really wanted to go and you thought had to be clearer in the world? You used to be a comedian. <laughs> that used to seems really damning of what's been happening so far. <laughs> but I'm a frustrated comedian, Sanderson. Mm. You know, I when I do lectures, it's just, I'm looking for the gag. You know? <laughs> I'm looking, yeah. I'm looking for that laugh the whole time. So my books are like comics. Have you noticed all the pictures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I, I showed I showed it to my wife, who's a clinical, who's a psychologist, and uh, yeah, and I was like, oh, this is a great way of doing a book. The book of knowing. Obviously, all my books have a reading age of twelve, but without being condescending, reading age of twelve. So that what it means is I will still convey complex systems like the amygdala and the temporal lobe and blah blah, but with cartoons and drawings. They're unique in the world in that way. I've, I've never actually seen the sort of format that I use. So 
my publisher said to me, um, do you want to do another one? And I said, yeah, why not? And she said, what on? And I said, well, there are two things that I see a lot of in my clinical practice. One is worry, but you don't write a book called The Book of Worry. Some people do. But you do a, a book of worry, no one wants to be seen reading it. You want to sit on the commute with the book of worry, you know, staring out at everybody. So the, I noticed that my younger clients use overthinking. Like I'll say to them, because worry is actually the lay term for generalized anxiety disorder. So I'll say to them, do you, do you worry at all? Mm, no, mum does. Mum does <laughs> no, no. My friend's got anxiety, I overthink. <laughs> yeah, and I said, do you overthink? Oh shit, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just constantly doing that. I can't shut it off. Well, it's exactly the same thing. But what I've done is I've used the language of youth, disguise, worry, which has a lot more of a negative and older connotation. And so that would be, I see 24 people a week. So that would be 60, maybe 70% of my clinical practice. And so I decided that, you know, and the way I write them is that, you know, public mental health services are in crisis, just like they are in the UK, because I've actually been approached by people uh, on email from the UK. Um, can I Skype? You know, we, we've been waiting eight months to get our daughter in to see someone. She's cutting, she's burning you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so I thought, right, well, not everyone can afford private services. They're expensive because we've got a lot of overheads. And so I wrote the books so that in the second half of the book, you actually go into a therapy room with me. And I set up six sessions as if you were there. And that means that if you live in a distant region, you haven't got any money, something like that, you can still achieve a great deal by just going through what's in the book. And the book of angst is also the same. Um, just with worry, you go into like, you really break it down. You've got like, you know, just sort of saying about how we sort of worry about things in the future, worrying about what happens in the past. It'd be great if you could explore just like some of the, the simple sort of ideas, which, you know, people, you know, whether it might be myths about it, like, oh no, actually I really need this to help. Like what are some misunderstandings that people have about uh, overthinking? The definition is the prediction of negative catastrophic outcome. That's, that's it by definition. So if you go into the thought distortions of the cognitive science, they would call that fortune telling prediction, negative filter, negative, catastrophic, catastrophizing. So the negative outcome is far more devastating in the imagination than probably what could ever happen in the real world. I was interested in that term that, that you were describing in terms of some of the work you do, the pre-mortem. Almost like the warrior 
is doing a pre-mortem of failure every minute of the day. And that's why it causes so many health problems. Because every time you worry, you switch on your fight flight mechanism, which then you switch on adrenaline and cortisol, all the things the system really doesn't need. And this just goes around and around and around. But you see, worry overthinking is superstitious behavior. It is completely superstitious. There is no evidence. It's not factually based. And, and thought cannot move matter in the real world unless you're watching something on the telly, you know, like one of the contemporary magicians. It's a bit like I say to people, because um, they say, look, I have to worry because if I don't worry, I'm going to drop the ball. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss that. I'm going to fuck this up. This is going to be a disaster. Then I'm going to lose my job. Then I'm going to be homeless. Then I want, you know, and on they go. And I say to them, okay, look, why don't we do this? Give me a minute. I'm just going to race downstairs and get a handful of salt and you can throw it over your shoulder and see how that goes. Because it's about as meaningful as that. It does nothing except cause illness and distress. Like what are some of the things that, you know, people find helpful as ways of getting out of this pattern? That's, so the first half of, of overthinking introduces you to the mythology, the superstition, um, and then it introduces you to the sort of thought distortions that maintain these superstitious ways of thinking. Then it goes into the strategies and techniques and a thought diary is a very common one. I usually start with the thought diary. Let's write down what you're thinking. Let's write down what sort of responses that activated emotionally and physiologically. Once the individual has got the grasp of the language, um, because this science, like a lot of things in our community, in our society, has a jargon. You know, we have business jargons, we have religious jargons, we have scientific jargons. You know, people, each culture has its own jargon. So it's a bit like teach what I would imagine it would be like teaching a foreign language. You have to know the words before you can put sentences together and before you can have something meaningful come from those constructions. Once that job's done, because what I'm always trying to do, overthinkers go into spirals. Spirals exist um, right throughout um, the anxiety disorders. The obsessive compulsive poor people, you know, they'll get into a, a hand-washing spiral where they can't stop and they go and they go and they go until their hands bleed or they count and they count and they count and if they've forgot the last number, they've got to go back, spiral back and start again. Now, overthinking slash worry is very, very much a spiral process of thought. So my main focus once I've provided the building blocks of the understanding is to get them out of the spiral because really all that exists in that spiral 
is irrational, superstitious bullshit. And so what I do is I break it down. Each thought, is this a fact? Is this real? Is it true? Is it helpful? And those sorts of, that matrix is on page 206. I use it a lot. Um, so that's really helpful. But then the, the finale is the creation of little flashcards and they're all in the book. And so one way to get the brain out of a spiral is to ask it a question. So I've got some really, really popular ones in the book. If I'm with a client, I'll often invent new ones or tailor new ones specifically to them. But one, probably one of the, the favorites over the years. So you're going round and round and round and round and round and round and round. Take a breath, ask the brain, how is this thinking helping me? And of course, the brain has to reply, it isn't. Whereas if you say, stop, 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 you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't stop thinking, stop thinking, then the memory gets woken up. And this is a guy who wrote a book called White Bears and Other Unwanted Thoughts, a guy called Wig. What happens, of course, is if you go, you shouldn't think that, you shouldn't think that, stop, stop, stop the memory then wakes up and goes, what? Stop thinking, what? You wanted me to stop thinking? Oh, you wanted me to stop thinking about this month's mortgage. Oh, okay. So once the memory steps in, it wakes up the thinking again and off you go, round and round. I think the language of superstition is really powerful because we sort of understand that a superstition is something which is not helpful and that it is done for the sake of doing things and has little control. And so I think there it's almost, you know, going back to some of that language of religion or religious practices quite handy. But I also think that there is in a lot of contemporary sort of spiritual thought or, you know, positive or even positive thinking, which is very influenced by, you know, I think those two movements are really similar. So I think you can talk about it in a way that there is this thing of like, you know, only think about this. Now, what you've got to do is you can only go and think about this. And I think sometimes when CBT uh, isn't well understood, it is this idea that you you've only got to have this thought. And if you're having the other thought, then it is not helpful. And you can get into that struggle the old thought struggle with the unhelpful way of thinking and so yeah i really love the sort of the acceptance and commitment therapy sort of look of things of actually trying to how can you sort of accept things without you know and, and still say like is this helpful right now how can you not struggle with it how can you not try to uh you know uh get into that thing where you're not trying to think about white white bears but it is, it can be a bit counterintuitive. And then do you think there's a reason why we're particularly seeing a lot of this today? And it's particularly in teenagers today. You have got a 25 to 40% genetic predisposition for high trait sensitivity. And then you stick role modeling on top of that. Um, but I think that so the, the new term, as I pointed out, is epigenetics. No one really talks about nature versus nurture. It's the both of them in interaction with each other. So for instance, in the book of angst, 
because I'm looking at social anxiety, a lot of people will confuse introversion with social anxiety, completely different thing. You're born an introvert, you're born an extrovert. The chemicals are completely different. However, if you are an introverted youth or child who then gets bullied, they have a statistically higher probability of becoming socially phobic. So you see certain things, Sanderson, are about vulnerability. Now, it would seem to me that with what you guys have been through in the UK with all your lockdowns and uncertainty, that a lot of people um, who perhaps had a, you know, reasonably, well, had an easygoing temperament, don't sweat the small stuff, and now exposed to very real uncertainty and, um, and loss. So they're going to start overthinking things, even if they hadn't done before. And I've certainly seen that at work. I mean, people all sort of turn up and, you know, they may have been highly sensitive beforehand. It's usually a common denominator, but they'll say to me, you know, prior to COVID, this just wasn't an issue for me. You know, I, I used to do it occasionally, but not the way it's taking over my life now. So I think that um, the very real environmental world, global issues, bullying, cyberbullying, you name it. Um, these things do act as significant triggers and you pop them on top of a, of a sensitive um, temperament and even a not so sensitive temperament and you've got a breeding ground for these sorts of cognitive behaviours. Well, look, that is uh, where we're going to end it. Gwendolyn, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I've really uh, enjoyed it. And I Me hope too. that you have a, uh, a great launch of your next book and a wonderful uh, rest of your week. Oh, that was Gwendolyn Smith. Uh, I really like that. Her, one thing it's annoying, one thing we didn't speak about was that uh, in her book, she also goes on about positive overthinking and how you can go and use that. We sort of ran out of time, so we weren't able to get into it. But yeah, I love her framing of it. I love that way of putting it. Like it really is a superstition and to view it as such. Um, I just loved her vibe. And uh, it's amazing to go and think about that someone as competent as her, someone as literate with their own psychology could, you know, not notice, uh, you know, the sort of tectonic plates in her own mind and, you know, how they were brewing uh, a sort of little earthquake and then suddenly her bipolar disorder kicked in. It, I really, for, you know, regular listeners, is that sort of connection between mental illness and spirituality, uh, touching the Godhead, as she put it, uh, is one that we sort of encounter again and again. It's super interesting. So I hope that you found that useful. Uh, I know that I did. Uh, anyone who is a podcast listener will know that at the moment I'm trying to give less of a shit and uh, 
hope it really comes across in the quality of the podcast. Yeah, who fucking cares? No, just uh, realizing that you know all these things will be happening anyway, and to go and take a step back and to not get into that way of thinking and feeling, uh, or rather overthinking and overfeeling. Oh, we always talk about overthinking. I think we all can sometimes get into overfeeling as well. So uh, yeah, hope you uh, liked. Indeed, love the podcast. Um, we, as ever. Uh, welcome you with open arms into the lifefulness community uh, and uh, I'll, I'll start backing out now so thanks so much to Gwendolyn Smith you can find her by googling her uh, thanks to James Croft he's my co- podcast co-host my podcast co-host uh, but even though he's not uh, on this one now thanks to Mavs the gorgeous producer and to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott who created the music what you are listening to right now